All right, let's get our Bibles open this evening to the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah chapter 40. And we will get into the message quickly uh, tonight. It is uh, a type of message that I've never preached before. I'm doing something I've never done. And just so you know, I don't have any idea how it's going to work out. So tonight might be... Uh, it might be really short, and we end up going home early, or it could be. <laughs> no, I don't think it'll be. I don't think it'll be that long. I can tell you that. But Isaiah chapter forty, something that I've never done before, and that's go through the entire chapter in one message. And I've I. Uh, have been reading this chapter. Pastor has been preaching on renewal out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. And a couple weeks ago when he began that sermon series, I was kind of scanning through the chapter and I uh, read a verse in Isaiah chapter 40 in verse number 13, who hath directed his spirit, the spirit of the Lord, uh, or being his counselor hath taught him. And uh, for whatever reason, God got my attention uh, with that and I began reading through the chapter once I got home and continue to read through this chapter uh, each day since that first message and the amount of, of treasures and, and wealth that's in here. Um, honestly, I can't fit into a Wednesday night service, but I'm going to try <laughs> if we can do it. I, I, I really just want to go through and just highlight a few things. Um, it is going to be a different type of, of sermon than you're used to, but that's okay. Pastor will be back on Sunday. And, uh, you'll be ready for him. So Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse number 1, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her, that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. That's the voice crying in the wilderness. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The voice said, cry. And he, talking about the prophet, and he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray together and we'll get into the chapter. Father, we love you. We think about the message and ask for your help uh, to preach in a way uh, that would be honoring to you and to your word. And we pray that you'd help us to take a good, long, lasting look into your presence, your glory, uh, your touch tonight. We pray for it. Ask for your Holy Spirit's power. Ask that you be with our church members, those who have uh, needs tonight. We uh, lift them up to you and pray that you would meet each one in a special way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Isaiah here is commanded to speak comfortably to Jerusalem and to cry unto her. 
And those seem like two different commands. How could you speak comfortably and yell at somebody at the same time? But that's what he is told to do, cry out, uh, call out. And that word cry out means to call out uh, or invite. And the root word means to accost somebody that you've just met. So Isaiah's job was to find somebody that he'd never met before and run up to them and tell them what's going on. Cry out. Every hill is going to be made flat. The rough place is plain. The uh, high places will be brought low and the low places will be brought high. And he's supposed to cry out to them, but speak comfortably at the same time. And so Isaiah, puzzled, says, what shall I cry? If God had told you that, given you that command to go accost somebody and tell them, what shall I cry, Isaiah asked. And this is the same calling that God placed in the uh, life of John the Baptist. Of course, we know that this passage is fulfilled later on in Scripture in Matthew chapter 3 as John the Baptist uh, makes this same message plain as he goes about uh, in his earthly ministry crying out and telling folks about this coming Messiah that would soon be on the scene. And the message that Isaiah is given is all flesh is grass. All flesh is grass. The goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. And when we take a minute and think about the power and the magnitude and the amazing uh, abilities that man has and all of the goodness that man has come up with and the inventions uh, that man has invented and the, the gold and the silver and the financial uh, strength that man has developed. And we think about society and all of the accomplishments uh, that society has brought and education and all the things that man has accomplished. It's like grass, like dried up, withered flowers. He says, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth. And Isaiah is given this good news to preach. Well, that's not very good news. And the reality is, if we look around at what humans can do or have done, we don't find a lot of good news. And if we think about our end and we think about our days and we think about what will be left after our casket is placed in the ground, there's not a lot of good news there. But stop for a second, though. The word of our God shall stand forever. When countries are built and crumble, when edifices are erected up to the sky and, and topple down, when man invents life-changing, society-altering inventions, all of that goes away. It'll come, it, what seems like will never fall will one day fall. But the word of our God shall stand forever. I mean to tell you that a year from now, 
the word of our God will stand forever. And 10 years from now, God's word will still be the authority. A hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, a million years from now, when we are in heaven, when the earth has been melted with a fervent heat, when all things are different, there will be one thing the same. And that is the word of our God will stand forever. He tells Isaiah to go and preach these good tidings. Verse number 8, O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah. He tells him, don't just say it, shout it. Don't just take this good news about the word of God that will stand forever. Don't just take this good news about whatever we uh, are, are facing is one day going to be gone and all the troubles that we think are so terrible will one day be burnt up like a, like a withered flower. He says, don't just take this good news about the strength and authority of the scripture and tell it, shout it. And he says, don't just shout it, but go up to a mountain and shout it. And not just any mountain, go up to the high mountain and shout it and yell it. And don't just take it from the high mountain, lift up your voice and don't be afraid. Throw all that fear to the side, let yourself go and tell all of these people, read it at the end of the verse. This is what this, the, the, all of the message culminates in this. Behold your God. Behold. That doesn't mean glance or look quickly or get a glimpse. Behold, it means to stop and stare. Behold your God. Get alone with Him and just fixate your attention and your eyes on Him. And from verse 9 through verse 31, the news changes from bad news to all good. He spends two verses on the bad and the rest of the chapter on the good. He says, behold your God. And that's what I want to do tonight. I want to look at who God is. Look at verse number 10 and 11, and we'll see the leadership of the Lord. Behold, the Lord your God will come with strong hand. And his arm will rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. We see first the strength of his hands and his arms. There in, in, in verse number 10, behold, his hands are strong. His arms are strong. I got to thinking peace comes through strength. Protection comes when somebody's strong enough to protect us. And God's arms are stronger than any bodybuilder. God's arms are stronger than any military. God's ability, His strength. But then it also says, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. God, that, that word reward is the same word uh, in, in the Bible that's talked about wages, his reward, like the payment for your work. His work is before him. 
He has plenty to do, but he pays well. You know, the compensation packet for serving the Lord is a-okay. His reward is with him. His work is before him. There's lots to do, but he will take care of us. And he covers all the insurance premiums. He covers all the dental, the vision, everything. I mean, the salary is way better than we could ever imagine. And, when, and his reward is with him. His work is before him. And then we talk about his leadership, his shepherd care for us. It goes on in verse number 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. How does a shepherd work? What does a shepherd do? It's like asking a, a mom, what do you do? What do you do all day? <laughs> That's kind of a silly question. What does a shepherd do? Well, they feed the flock. They water the flock. They protect the flock. They guide the flock. They direct the flock. There's medical care for the flock. There's attention given to the flock. The uh, babies that are born are tended to by the shepherd. There's the shearing of the sheep. There's a lot to be done. You know, God takes care of even the smallest details of our lives. God is there to, to, like a tender shepherd, holding us, picking us up, bringing our young ones along. God is there to take care of each and every one of our steps, the leadership of the Lord. Stop and think about that uh, for just a little bit. Everything rises and falls on leadership. The Bible talks about when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And it's so good to know that the one who rules has got a heart of gold. He's flawless. He's perfect. He's never messed up in a leadership position. He's never treated his employees wrong or, or treated his, uh, uh, those under him in a, in a wrong or incorrect way. If you've ever had the privilege of having a bad boss... that verse kind of sinks in a little bit deeper and how good it is to have a, a good leader, the leadership of the Lord. Then I'll look at the largeness of the Lord. Verse number 12, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure? His hands are big enough to put the ocean in the hollow of his hands. Now, I looked this up, and I don't know if, I mean, with, with Google, you can't necessarily trust it. But the estimate is 352 quintillion gallons of water in the ocean. That's 352 with 15 zeros on the end. And that just, he just picks that up yeah. in the hollow of his yeah. hand. Amen. Oh. He knows the dust of the earth in an exact measurement. He doesn't have to use scientific notation. Right. He can tell you exactly the amount of dirt on the planet. Yeah. He, the Bible says, the dust of the earth in a measure, and he's weighed the mountains in scale and the hills in a balance. Again, Google, I don't know if this is true, 
they estimate Mount Everest, one mountain, big mountain, 357 trillion pounds is what they estimate Mount Everest to weigh. And that's just on one side of his balance. He can, he can measure the mountains and the hills. Who, and then verse number 15 and 16 talk about the largeness of the Lord. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. <laughs> the small dust of the balance. God says the nations are as the, they're just a drop in the bucket. You ever had a five-gallon bucket and you're walking along and a little bit spills out? You don't stop and say, oh, I lost some. It's just a drop in the bucket. In the small dust of the balance, if you, uh, uh, in those days, they would sell grain or, or, or flour, or barley, uh, whatever they were selling, dry goods, they would take a, a, a scale and they would, they would have stones or, or metal of some type, uh, an exact weight, and they would put that weight, let's say you're buying an omer of flour, they would put a, a stone that weighed one omer, and then they would put flour onto the other side of the scale un, until it balanced out. And then they would take that, that dish that, that held the one omer of flour, and they would just pour it off into a bag. And the merchant would tell the buyer, here is your flour. They would exchange good uh, uh, finances for this, these goods. And then that merchant would go about his next scoop onto there. But every once in a while, there'd be somebody, somebody that would say, oh, oh, give me the small dust of that balance. Scrape the rest off in there. Dump the omer in there, but they want to get all the little dust off the inside of that dish. And you know what that merchant said when that guy left? Oh, why does he care about the small dust of the balance? What is it with this guy? It's like you see the guy at the gas pump and he's got his gas tank full and then he does this to the hose. God looks at the nations as the small dust of the balance. The left, this, it's nothing. Why does that even matter? The Bible goes on, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. Lebanon was very famous, known for its cedar trees. He's saying, you take every cedar tree in Lebanon, you take every tree that's there, and that's not even, doesn't even scratch the surface of what it would take to really sacrifice and really honor God with what he deserves. The largeness of God. Those hands are big enough to measure the, the oceans and those great big vast blue skies, the Bible tells us, are just a handbreadth, a span. A span is a distance from your thumb to your pinky. And we look at the sky and we think, wow, what a horizon. And God says, one, two, three. And he just measures it with his hand. God's largeness. We can't comprehend it. But he looks at the islands, he looks at the nations as a very little thing. And then verses 13 and 14 is a thought that's just really encouraged me. Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? 
Who gave God's spirit direction? Who was God's teacher? Who did God call for advice? Who authored the instruction manual that God used to create the world? With whom took he counsel? Who instructed him? Who taught and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? <laughs> they say everybody can remember a favorite teacher. And if you think about it, you can probably remember somebody. But God doesn't. If you went into God's office, you wouldn't find a degree hanging on his wall. No one taught him. He didn't need school. He didn't have to. There's no student loans. God did not need to be instructed. Yet somehow we feel like we need to instruct him. I remember where I was sitting when it dawned on me that my dad was right. <laughs> and I thought, maybe I had to call him for some advice. And you probably can remember a time when something dawned on you and it just like, it, it all of a sudden hit you. God doesn't remember that. God doesn't know what that's like. Nothing has ever dawned on God. And then we see the likeness of the Lord in verse 18 through 21. And we'll read again in verse 25. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. Talking about fashioning an idol. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation, so somebody is so poor they have no offering. There's nothing that they can offer. So they choose, chooseth a tree that will, rot, that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not move. The likeness of God. Can you compare God to an idol? Can we compare God to jewelry or gold or silver chains? We can't. That it, it wouldn't even begin to be an, a, a, an appropriate comparison. But I want to think about what we do compare God to. If we're rich, uh, we, we show that. And they would in those days by fashioning idols made out of gold and silver. And they would hire uh, not just any artist, but the best artist that money could buy to fashion that idol. And then they would make chains out of silver to show their wealth and their ability. And somebody who was poor, impoverished, did not have anything to offer. They wanted a God. They wanted something they could serve. And so they'd go get a craftsman to take a tree that was rooted firmly in the ground and strong and healthy, one that would not rot, and carve into the side of that tree an idol, one that would not move or would not change. And we long for that, that security, that assurance that it's not going to rot and it's not going to change and it's not going to move. And in this earth, on this planet, how much time do we spend focusing our efforts on getting security? 
the things that will keep us long into the future, the, uh, the retirement plans, the, the finances, the, the uh, protection, our, our children, we're, we're very concerned, and heaven knows if they go riding those roller skates without one helmet, two elbow pads, two knee pads, shin guards, and wrist guards, and face guards, and a mask. Our children are going to die. Security means so much to us. I don't know the amount of time that we spend thinking about it. But they would fashion an idol out of a tree that wouldn't rot and wouldn't change. Can I tell you something that's not going to rot and not going to change? The Word of our God will stand forever. It doesn't matter what changes in our society. This never will. It doesn't matter what goes right or what goes wrong. It doesn't matter if, we, if we're wealthy or if we're impoverished. It does not matter what we have or what we have not. It will not change. The word of our God will stand forever. And we can't compare him to the trunk of a tree. We can't compare him to an idol of gold. It goes on and it says, Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Verse number 25 says, To whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and behold... Just look. Lift up your eyes on high and behold. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told unto you, verse number 21, from the beginning, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. So think, think for a second. What does a grasshopper see? when he's looking up. I don't know uh, if there are any other men in there that used to be boys, but we used to catch grasshoppers and get some scotch tape and tape them down to the, to the ground, and then we'd take a magnifying glass. Oh, don't look at me like that. <laughs> what does a grasshopper... <laughs> I never really thought about it, but what does a grasshopper see when they're looking up? It's terrorizing, I'm sure. Can I tell you, there are, uh, the, the, the way God looks, it, it, he, the Bible tells us here, the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that he stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. He takes the sky and he just, like a curtain. He looks down, it's like grasshoppers. You know, sometimes I, I think about what a grasshopper sees when he looks up, and it's, it, it's terrifying, I would think. And I think that's probably why we don't look up that often. Because he's so big, it, it's scary. And sometimes it really is. When we talk about doing God's will, we're talking about teenagers doing God's will, I don't know, uh, many of you probably had a similar experience, but I was scared to death God was going to call me to Africa and I'd have to go be a missionary. And I wouldn't look because I was scared. 
and we do that. We, we, God is so big that we get fearful. How could we not see? Well, sometimes we don't see just because we're not looking. How could you not see? How could you not see that? It's right in front of you. Well, my eyes weren't lifted up. I was looking down. Sometimes you uh, see a blooper reel or a video of somebody's texting and walking into a pole at the same time. That's funny to me. How do you miss that? How do you not see that? I wasn't looking. Not paying attention. Our eyes are not lifted up on high and behold. How could we say he doesn't know or care about us? Look at verse number 27. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? They have gotten to the place here in Isaiah chapter 40 where they were saying, God doesn't know where we are, and God doesn't care. It says it right there in verse, my judgment is passed over from my God. My way is hid from the Lord. God doesn't know where I'm at. God doesn't care where I'm at. God's not interested in my cause. He's not worried about my problems. How could you say that? I think of the story of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee and the waves are tossing high and, and, the, and the, the water is coming over into the boat and there Jesus is taking a nap or taking a rest and the disciples are scared to death and they call out and they say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Jesus said, peace be still, relax, I've got this. And the ocean instantly calmed. What kind of a dumb question is that? Carest thou not that we perish? He's in the boat too. How could you say that he doesn't care? I don't know, but I'm guilty of it. I don't know, but I sure feel stupid for thinking it now. When you just take a second and look at God and just look at him, just open it up and spend a few minutes or a few hours looking at who he is. How could you say that he doesn't care? Well, you'd say that if you're thinking the wrong things. The next verse says, Verse number 28, hast thou not known? <laughs> Didn't you know that? But when our mind is off, we begin thinking wrong thoughts. And when we start thinking things like God doesn't see, God doesn't know, my judgment is passed over from my God, then you know, you can diagnose it. You don't need to go to the doctor. You're thinking wrong when you think that. How could we not know? Verse number 28 goes on, it says, Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? <laughs> if you have children, you know the frustration that comes from telling them not once, not twice, not three times, but the fourth time. There's something about that fourth time. First of all, we shouldn't get to four. But we do sometimes. And it's just... How? 
know? How do you not know this by now? I tell my kids sometimes, you're not deaf, you're just disobedient. And the reality is we do know. We just magically forget. We don't remember things that we know. How could you not know that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? How could you forget something of that magnitude? We do. And we do when we don't take a look at our God. Behold our God. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light, there's enough light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Through death into life everlasting He passed and we follow Him there. Over us sin no more hath dominion for more than conquerors we are. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. His word will not fail you. He promised. Believe Him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, His perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. If you notice, back in Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 8 and 9, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. At first, he's speaking specifically to the prophet. He says, you cry. But then in verse number 8, excuse me, in verse number 9, the, the prophet changes. He didn't tell Isaiah to go up to the top of the mountains. He tells the whole city. Jerusalem, Zion, now it's your job. I think that this passage is not to the preacher, it's to the church. It is our job to go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation, to tell. Let's stand together, heads bowed, and eyes closed tonight think about this passage, and I don't know if it was a help to you, but I can tell you that it was a help to me just to spend a little time looking at the Lord. And I want you tonight, New Year's time, it's, it's uh, so easy to make decisions about what we're going to do or not do, and me, like uh, probably many others, Lose weight, number one. And there's only one, there's a million diets, a million, a million options, but there's one thing that works every time, every time, every time, diet and exercise, diet and exercise. It works every time. And we all talk about it. And we all want to do it. But we don't do it somehow. I, I'm guilty. There's one thing that works in your Christian life. Read your Bible and pray. 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 
And we want to read our Bible. 